Up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's show, we'll learn about surgical options for melanoma and the value of a team approach. You know, having one melanoma puts you at risk for other skin cancers and other melanomas, so that's why it's important to get dermatology involved. Then we'll hear about how more people are surviving cancer. The improvements in treatment have been a lot related to cancers of the blood and lymph systems, and these are the leukemias and lymphomas. And we'll talk with a doctor of physical therapy with important advice for how to safely use modern electronic devices. Having choices of of movement, and and really the key is, is just trying to change up your activity and your position. All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a selection from our healing muse, coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore a variety of health and medical issues from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll hear why more people are surviving cancer. Then we'll talk with a doctor of physical therapy about the safe way to use modern electronic devices. But first, we'll learn about the diagnosis and treatment of melanoma. Cancers of the skin are by far the most common of all cancers, and today we're going to talk about one of the deadliest forms of skin cancer, melanoma. Fortunately, melanoma accounts for only about 1% of skin cancers, but it's the skin cancer most likely to grow and spread. So if you or someone you care about is facing a diagnosis, there's much to consider. Here to talk about melanoma is Dr. Scott Albert, an assistant professor of surgery at the Upstate Cancer Center. Welcome, Dr. Albert. Good morning. So let's start by defining melanoma. It's not, it's not the only kind of skin cancer, so how do you, how do you define it? Yeah, so melanoma is, uh, like you said, a type of skin cancer. Um, it tends to be a pigmented lesion found on the skin surface, often with uh, irregular borders. Um, it can have you know, a variety of discolorations to it. Once in a while, melanoma can actually not have any pigmentation to it, but it can typically look... Most people just see something on their skin and it just looks unusual. And, mm. uh, and uh, patients can often identify that this lesion, this mole, just doesn't look right to them. So that's an often, uh, oftentimes a scenario that I, I see when I'm talking with patients. Do they pop up overnight, so to speak, or is it just a change in something and it starts looking different? So melanomas can arise de novo or without a previous lesion. That's the most common way. Once in a while, melanomas can arise from a previous mole or nevus that was there for a long time, and all of a sudden, over a matter of weeks or month, months, you know, either the patient or patient's family member noticed a change. So it really can can arise in a, a variety of ways. Okay, so it's the melanocytes. Is that how you say? Is that that's the cells that are affected? Correct. Yeah, there's a variety of of cells in our skin and. Melanocytes are a type of cell in the in the in our skin that and and really that's what gives our skin pigmentation and that's where uh, melanomas arise from okay. that that cell type. So, do people with darker skin complexion do they have more of a protection from this or? That's a good question. Uh, obviously, uh, p- 
patients that have a, a darker complexion, melanoma is a little less common because we think that a lot of melanomas are related to uh, sun damage and pigmentation in your skin actually protects you uh, from UV oh. radiation. So you oftentimes will see patients with uh, very fair skin, and those are the patients that are most at risk. Okay. However, patients with dark skin uh, can also develop melanomas, so it doesn't exclude them from, from risk, although the, the risk is, is most likely lower in those patients. There's probably a variety of factors uh, causing uh, melanomas to develop. Uh, genetics, uh, fair skin, obviously, is one of them. Okay. Uh, uh, and I'll, I'll also sun exposure. And the sun exposure. Now, I've seen that um, the rates have been rising over the past several decades. So is that mostly sun exposure? It's probably probably, a, probably uh, a lot of a lot of several factors, but clearly sun exposure, blistering sunburns have been uh, linked to melanoma risk, and also tanning bed use has been shown to uh, increase your risk for for melanoma. Okay. So that's been uh, widely reported. Now, living in a climate where there's a lot of clouds, does that offer any protection for us? It's a good question. Oftentimes, people ask me why I. Why would I ever see a melanoma in Syracuse? Right, but, right. but the reality is, is patients are still at risk even in this area because they may oftentimes in the summer uh, get those blistering sunburns, right. not put any sunscreen on, or it's not uncommon to have patients go to Florida or warm weather climates for the winter, and then uh, they return to Syracuse. Um, sure, so, makes sense. So we definitely see uh, a lot of melanoma in, even in Syracuse. Okay, well, how are melanomas um, usually brought to the attention of a doctor? Is it usually something a patient finds, or is it during the regular um, annual exam maybe the doctor sees something? So it, it can come a variety of ways. Oftentimes patients who have a history of sun damage and even uh, other types of skin cancers may already be in the care of a dermatologist who follows them closely, who then may notice uh, unusual uh, uh, pigmented lesion or something atypical and we'll do a biopsy. But an, an, another common way to see a melanoma is, uh, you know, a patient uh, detects something that looks abnormal or even a family member because frequently melanomas can be on the back oh, where mm -hmm. patients don't really uh, look very frequently. And, and then they may seek attention from a primary care physician or, or, or someone someone that they're seeing on a regular basis. So it can come from those patients that are seeing dermatologists regularly or very frequently through a primary care care physician. And then some of those um, patients end up coming to Upstate, and I, I want you to tell me a little bit about the team approach that we have now for um, melanoma. Yeah, so is... the, the majority of melanomas are stage one. So uh, superficial melanomas uh, have a great outcome, excellent survival. But there are a fair number of melanomas that are higher stage, require complex treatment. And so what we've started here is a, a multidisciplinary program to allow us to discuss some of these uh, complex cases that require surgery, sometimes radiation, medical oncology, and then also importantly is dermatology for um, hmm. diagnosis, surveillance, follow-up. 
So this program meets monthly and we, we discuss any, any melanoma case, but typically the, the complex cases get heavily discussed. So really we can come up with a, a treatment plan for that patient that, that best suits them and having a lot of input from other specialties can be very beneficial. Oh, I imagine. I imagine. Now, does does melanoma get staged like um, just like all other cancers do? It does. It, it does have a, a staging system. It's really largely based on how deep the melanoma is um, and how involved the skin is. Additionally, we look at lymph node status. So we base our, our treatment on uh, you know, largely if it's involving lymph nodes or not and uh, how deep the melanoma is. Those are kind of the main factors, and obviously if it's spread elsewhere in the body. Okay. So those are kind of our main criteria for, for staging melanoma. And that sort of um, points to the type of treatment. So um, what are the treatment options? You mentioned if it's a stage one, that's got to be the, the, the least involved, Correct. right? Correct, yes. Early stage one melanomas are treated with uh, surgery alone, uh, oh. and no other treatments are required. However, you know, having one melanoma puts you at risk for other skin cancers and other melanomas, so that's why it's important to get dermatology involved early and have regular surveillance visits with dermatology for not only recurrence, but also development of new skin cancers, because having one melanoma tells us that your skin has been damaged. Um, and you're at risk. So, so that's the majority. And, and when we talk about the higher stages, namely stage three, stage four melanomas, that's where we really have to put our heads together and, and decide what the best, best plan is for those patients, whether it's surgery, surgery and chemotherapy, surgery and, um, and radiation. So that's really what's beneficial about our, our, our multidisciplinary group. So very individualized, it sounds like. Correct. Totally different. Well, I've got some more questions, but let me remind listeners that this is Upstate's Health Link on Air, and you're Dr. Scott Albert, an assistant professor of surgery from the Upstate Cancer Center. So we talked a little about some of the treatment options, but let's fast forward a bit to like what's out there on the horizon, what's in, in, in laboratories today that might become a treatment in the future. Yeah, so one thing we've, we've started to do is... Uh, is offer certain patients a genetic test on their tumor, and that can help uh, categorize patients into a lower, higher risk for problems down the road. So, so this is what you would remove if you do surgery. You would then send it to the lab and try to gauge whether the chances of it recurring or correct. Yeah. So by looking at the the tumor itself and a, a panel of genes within the tumor. Uh, we can decide if that, that melanoma is at higher or lower risk for recurrence. And sometimes that may prompt us to follow you a little closer or a little less frequently or may sometimes dictate additional testing. Um, so that's some of the benefits. Although still in the early phases and, and implementation of this test is, is still up in the air, I think it's something on the horizon that we will begin the offer more regularly. And we do this for other cancers to some extent, looking at the tumor itself and, and understanding the, hmm. the genetics of that tumor. So we can really individualize the treatment of that cancer for that, that specific patient, that specific scenario. So is, are there genes that we know about that cause 
melanoma? Yeah, there's quite a few genes that we are beginning to associate with melanoma. One of the challenges with melanoma is that it is one of the most variable, uh, when you look at the genetic profile of, of melanoma, there are a variety of genes that are abnormal. Whereas if you look at some of the other types of cancers, you know, there may just be a few mutations, whereas melanoma has a variety of numerous mutations uh-huh. in, in their genetic profile. So it gets to be a little bit more challenging and, you know, how to treat. And, and, and that's really one of the, the wow. been one of the kind of areas of, of challenges for, for melanoma treatment, really. So getting back to treatment, are there clinical trials that are looking um, positive? Yeah, I think, you know, the treatment for melanoma for 20 years was, especially for advanced melanomas, was really minimal. We had a few therapies that had minimal effect, but really in the last five or 10 years, the landscape for for advanced melanoma has changed, and there's quite a bit of uh, systemic therapies or sort of chemotherapies that we can offer patients to treat advanced melanoma. We do have... uh, several clinical trials available for patients for advanced melanoma. And I think that's really uh, something that we're working towards because these clinical trials aren't uh, really a placebo versus the best therapy. It's really the standard therapy or something more to standard. Mm-hmm. So, so patients are getting something that may not be available at all to them on some of these clinical trials. And especially for melanoma, we're really trying to uh, push push uh, forward with with improving our treatment because because like I said most melanomas are uh, good actors in early stage but every once in a while we see a real bad actor for melanoma and they can be very aggressive and those are the patients that these clinical trials I think will will benefit. Wow! Wow! Okay. Well, so somebody could have um, advanced melanoma if they've had. Uh, something that has gone unnoticed for a long time. Correct. Yeah, melanoma it can behave very bizarre, bizarrely. Uh, you know, like I said, most melanomas, you know, are, are you do fine, but once in a while, these melanomas can either recur years down the road or at presentation, they may already be metastatic. So, so those are the patients that we really have to put our heads together and figure oh, out what the best treatment okay. is for them. So whether it's a clinical trial or, you know, being a part of this multidisciplinary group, those are the patients that I think really benefit. They get the benefit of, of, of multiple physician input into, into their treatment at, you know, at one setting. Cause it sounds like there's a lot of decisions that the patient will have to make, um, for each treatment. Yeah. I think the, the, the nice thing about having all these new, drugs available for advanced melanoma is that it benefits the patient but sometimes it makes the decisions a little more Harder challenging because yeah. you have so many relatively so many more options Probably for, have to sit down and treatment. make a list of what's the pros and cons of each Correct. pathway or whatever yeah and mean? everyone's individualized if it's a, a younger person older person sure. can they tolerate the treatment can they tolerate the surgery so there's a lot of uh, questions that go into into making the final plan. So anyone with something that is troubling them in the appearance of a mole or something on their skin should bring it to the attention of their primary care doctor and not ignore it. Yeah, absolutely. I think 
patients uh, know best, really. They can tell when something just doesn't look right. Um, and that goes, actually, that's been studied in recurrent melanomas. Patients are the most common, um, patient detection is the most common way to find a recurrence for most melanomas. So, Great. so it's important for patients to be aware and, uh, and not ignore changes. Okay. Well, thanks so much for being here. This has been Amber Smith speaking about melanoma with Dr. Scott Albert for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Thank you. Stay with us. Next, why more people are surviving cancer on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, and this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. The death rate for cancer peaked 25 years ago in 1991 and has been dropping ever since. And today, overall, the death rate is the lowest it has been. In New York State alone, there are more than a million survivors of cancer. Here to talk about this is Dr. Leslie Coleman, Professor of Surgery and Director of Outreach for the Upstate Cancer Center. Thanks for being here. Happy to be here, Amber. All right, well, let's start first by explaining what a, uh, what a death rate is. We measure death rate by how many deaths from cancer in 100,000 people. This is to stabilize it for different population. Our population has grown, so we have more cancers by number, but the rate ah, is lower. Okay, okay. All right. Now, um, and the death rate from cancer peaked in 1991. Why has it been, what happened in 1991 that made it peak and then it's been dropping since then? Well, one of the major reasons for the drop is reduction in smoking. Back in the 1970s and 80s, almost half of all people in the United States smoked, especially men. This is now down to less than 20%, and in New York State, less than 15%. So this is one of the major reasons. We also have had advances in detecting cancer early when it's still curable, in particular colonoscopy, which also removes precancerous polyps, and more recently, CT scanning for lung cancer, which Mm. can detect lung cancer when it's still curable. Okay. Treatments have also gotten better. Okay. Well, which are there specific cancers that are most responsible for the decreasing death rate? Yes. Lung cancer, of course, because of the reduction in smoking. There is less lung cancer in men and now also in women than there used to be. And the other three most common cancers of solid organs, breast cancer, prostate cancer, and colorectal cancer. Now, I must say that there's a little twitch in the colorectal cancer rate in that a recent report shows that people born around 1990, the millennials and the Gen Xers, have almost twice as high a rate of colorectal cancer as people born around 1950. 
And these people are less than 50 years old, which when we normally start screening. So I anticipate more research and eventually new guidelines on who might be at higher risk and therefore need to be screened sooner. Now, these rises are one of the major remaining reasons that we have so much cancer, and that is the combination of obesity and low physical activity among our population. And for colorectal cancer, it's also believed to be partly due to a low-fiber diet. Low-fiber diet. So it's lifestyle changes that can make the most difference. That does sound pretty alarming, though, to be a double risk. So um, that's interesting. We will have to keep an eye on that. Um, But getting back to the the drop in the death rate, what are some of the reasons for this? Well, um, as we mentioned, the reduction in smoking, early detection, and treatment. But the improvements in treatment have been a lot related to cancers of the blood and lymph systems. And these Uh are the leukemias and lymphomas and also something people may have heard of as Uh, myeloma or myeloproliferative disorders. These improvements are due to treatment because there is no prevention or screening for these diseases. And we now have special drugs that can do an amazing job with some of these blood and lymph cancers. Okay. So new new drugs that have been discovered or developed? Right. Okay. Interesting. I must tell everyone, though, that only a small percentage of new drugs with promise actually turn out right, because early reports often show that a drug is effective in a small group of special patients, but when applied to more patients, they don't really hold up to their Mm, promise. So the drugs that we have that have been such miracle workers are a very, very small a number of the drugs that have been discovered. Okay. All right. Well, I keep saying that the overall um, death rate has improved, but when you look at this more closely, um, are, are we seeing the same improvements in men versus women or different races, different populations, or is, it, is, is there a bigger story to tell? There's a much bigger story to tell. In fact, for men, cancer death rates have dropped more than women, probably because more men smoked and more men stopped smoking mm-hmm. sooner. Uh, and so uh, that's the death rate. And for uh, different races, African Americans and Latinos have a higher risk of dying from cancer than white oh. people. Do we know why that is? Well... One of the major reasons has been lack of access to early detection and treatment. And we know that in certain communities, largely communities which are poor and have higher rates of obesity and smoking, the cancer death rates actually rose considerably while falling in other communities. So this is a major, major problem is that we do not have the same improvement among all members of our population. Now, one thing that has improved it a little bit recently and has contributed to this fall in overall death rate is that twice as many African Americans and Latinos now have health insurance 
after the institution of the Affordable oh. Care Act or Obamacare, and that has helped those communities and those population members to have a reduction in okay. their cancer rates. Well, interesting. I definitely want, I have more questions about that, but let me re remind listeners that this is Upstate's Health Link on Air, and we're talking with Dr. Leslie Coleman from the Upstate Cancer Center about the dramatic drop in cancer death rates overall in the United States. Um, so there's good news about overall cancer death rates dropping, and yet there are some cancers that are seeing an increase. So let's talk about those that are that are singled out, sort of. Well, we've already mentioned the rising incidence of colorectal cancer in young people. Young. Mm -hmm. Also, liver cancer is rising, primarily due to hepatitis C infection, which is an infection among the baby boomer population, that is people born between 1946 and 1964, and everyone born during that time should have a test for hepatitis C because oh. there are now treatments for it that can help to prevent liver cancer. Huh, okay. Cancer of the esophagus, larynx, and bladder are increasing, probably due to smoking and environmental toxins. I saw that um, the incidence in death in men is a lot higher in these than in women. Yes. Like you were saying, for the smoking is probably the reason. Right, and melanoma. Malignant melanoma of the skin, the most deadly skin cancer, is rising. The incidence is rising in women. The death rate is actually higher in men. But the rising incidence in women is due to use of artificial tanning. That's booths. what I was going to guess. And this needs to be stopped because there is no health benefit to artificial tanning, and it's definitely led to a large increase in malignant skin cancer among young women. Now, the death rate being higher in men, is that a lack of uh, diagnosis? or It probably is partly due to treatment later in okay. stage, but we don't have enough research to know the exact okay. reasons for much of this. Okay. Uh, what about uterine cancer? Uterine cancer is rising, and this is related to obesity, so it's probably oh. connected to the rise in the rate of obesity among our population. Well, wow, a lot of it comes back to obesity, it seems like. Comes back to lifestyle. The three pillars of a lifestyle to prevent cancer are stop smoking, don't gain weight, and increase your physical activity. Mm -hmm. All sound right, sound which are good for then. everything else too, besides right. preventing cancer. All right. Well, the um, getting back to the affordable, the, the American Cancer Society credits the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, with helping to improve these uh, cancer death rates in minorities. But how have the rates of insurance or uninsured, um, how does that translate to improved cancer survival? Well, one reason is because one part of the Affordable Care Act has to do with requiring everyone's insurance to cover cancer screening with no deductible, no copay. And this is has allowed many, many more people to have okay. access to colonoscopy, lung cancer screening, mammography, etc. So this protection and this uh, value of 
by the Affordable Care Act of early detection to allow early treatment and reduction in death is vital and needs to be continued. So it comes down to the screening and getting it. And, and with screening, the idea is that um, you'll find a cancer early when it's most treatable. Right. And with colonoscopy, also prevention, because as I mentioned, oh. removal of precancerous polyps actually prevents cancer from forming. Okay. For lung and breast, it's detection of early cancers that have already developed. Okay, and then with the lung cancer, we have the way to do with the screening right. now, right? Right, Just the, in the last couple of years, it's been approved by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid so that people who have a heavy smoking history and are between 55 and 77 years old should get an annual low-dose CT scan of their lungs so that early lung cancers can be detected and treated and they will survive. Okay. Neat. Well, what do you think needs to happen in order to continue this tra trajectory of improved survivability? Well, we need more clinical and basic research. And one of the things we need research on are strategies to help people be motivated to do the lifestyle oh. changes they need to do. They're the hardest and the most important. So again, I sound like a broken record, but this is what's important. Stop smoking, get a lot of exercise. Walking is fine. 10,000 steps a day is wonderful and not gaining weight well, or getting obese. It, those things do sound simple, but obviously they're not. They're Otherwise not everyone simple. would do it. So Right, exactly. They're free and they don't have any untoward <laughs> bad side effects, but they are the hardest to institute. That's what we need to do. And then um, the Cancer Society is advocating the insurance coverage too. That that's, that's extremely important. Access to early detection, access to care for when you do have a diagnosis, and access to services. If someone has insurance and does have a doctor they could go to, but they don't have any childcare or transportation, right. or they'll lose their job if they take some time off to go to the doctor, they don't have access. Right. right. So it's a big socioeconomic problem, which is why communities of poverty don't have the same cancer survival rate as communities right. with more resources. Okay. Well, uh, the American Cancer Society projects almost 1.7 million people will be diagnosed with cancer this year in 2017. That's a lot of people, but as we've discussed, the outlook for most of them is much better today than if they'd been diagnosed a couple decades ago. Right. So I want to thank Dr. Leslie Coleman for speaking with me about cancer rates in the United States. This has been Amber Smith for Upstate's Health Link on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's Checkup from the Neck Up, All You Need is Love, or Family Feuding Fun. Well, folks, my wife and I are empty nesters. Our two boys went away to college, one after the other, came home briefly to gather their resources and their courage, check the want ads, say their goodbyes, and off they went, one west coast, the other east. And now they have fiancés, and they're developing careers out there. So Pammy and I are left here in between. 
And while it's been seven years for one and three for the other, it's only now really sinking in that they ain't coming back. Pangs of loneliness. Sure, we get to see them a few times a year, usually around the holidays, and we chat on the phone, and we try not to call too often to avoid the dreaded non-conversation conversation that basically says, I love you, Dad, but I'm busy with my new life. Yeah, we love them to pieces. And who knew the endless time to quit the video game, guys, and do your homework, and... Ah, uh, Dad, do we really? And time to go to bed now. And ah, uh, Mom, do we really? And countless soccer games and lacrosse games and baseball games would actually come to an end forever. Anyway, how to cope with this painful separation. A while back, I saw some research saying smartphones are addicting and difficult to ignore when driving because when the text ping pings, there's a surge of pleasurable brain chemicals saying, answer me, answer me, and text back for another surge. And I saw other research saying, Facebook messages and emails from loved ones are almost as good as real-life visits for making us feel connected and loved. I was very skeptical. How could that be true? An email is just an email, and a hug is a hug, and a kiss is a kiss. Now, I've been late to the smartphone party, just recently getting a hand-me-down one from my older son, and lo and behold, he put this game Word Feud on it, basically Scrabble played with partners over the phone, and he invited me to play with him, and <laughs> my other son did too, yahoo! So we're playing away and sending playful, teasing, complimentary messages back and forth. And you know what? When the phone pings, it is thrilling. A little brain surge of love. They're thinking of me, talking with me, teasing me, playing with me. And that spells love. L-O-V-E. Only four letters, but the highest scoring word of all. I'm Dr. Rich, pang, ping, love on the brain, O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up next... The one thing you can do to reduce your risk of injury from electronic devices such as cell phones and tablets. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Smith, and this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. So many people rely on electronic devices of some sort to get through their days, whether by using cell phones, tablets, handheld gaming devices, or laptop computers. 
How you position yourself while using your device may influence whether you're at risk for developing an injury. Dr. Adam Rufa, an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy Education at Upstate Medical University, is here to talk about the best way to use modern devices. Welcome, Dr. Rufa. Thanks for having me. Now, you've done research yourself on whether there's a connection between posture and shoulder pain. What have you found? Yeah, there, and I picked shoulder pain because shoulder pain is one of those disorders that uh, we've been highly suspicious that posture could have an impact. And, you know, the way the structures are, it makes sense that if you are in certain positions that it would maybe put extra stress on tissues. However, we're finding, like, a lot of the things that we research, it's a little more complex than that. And so, so really what I did is I did a review of all the studies that have been done to look and see, is there consistent evidence that posture is important? And there actually, I did find very consistent evidence, but it was very consistent evidence that posture does not play a big role really? in developing shoulder pain. Hmm. And that doesn't mean that if somebody already has shoulder pain, that changing their position and posture and how they move might not help. And we do that a lot. Somebody comes in and it hurts to lift my arm up. Sometimes changing how they're sitting and moving can put less pressure on certain structures and it feels better. But to be able to say to somebody that if you sit a certain way or have a certain posture, it'll help prevent or keep you from having shoulder pain. It just doesn't seem like that's the case right now. Maybe as we get better information, um, we'll, we'll change our ideas. But there's been, been several studies. I mean, I, I found nine specific that looked directly at that. And all nine of them did not find the link between the posture somebody had and the amount of pain that they had. Interesting. Okay. Well, what sorts of issues do you see developing in people um, related to their use of electronic devices? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's been a lot on this. And you, you, see, you see news reports all the time about the, the dangers of, of spending too much time on electronics. And I, I agree with them that it probably is dangerous, uh, but more so because when you're on electronics, you're usually not moving. Hmm. Okay. And our bodies are really over the over the our evolution have been have designed to move, and we're not really meant to be staying staying in any one position for a really long time. And our our children, and now and even even as adults, we spend more and more time on electronics and less and less time moving, and that has ramifications throughout. I mean, it, it has ramifications on maybe our musculoskeletal health and if we get pain, right. but also our cardiovascular health. Um, it, it's a risk factor for obesity. Um, and, and so it's really an important thing that we, we put those down every now and then and start moving. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> well, um, what about, uh, I've, I've seen problems with repetitive thumb movements from texting. I've seen issues uh, come up about that. Do you do you see that still? Yeah, you know, and, and the way I always describe it is in our body, there's always a balance. There's a balance between the the stresses we're putting on the tissue okay. and the tissue's ability to then repair itself or even build itself stronger, which is the great thing about bodies that are different than machines. If we use our body in a repetitive way, it can actually develop a resistance to that and build the tissue up stronger. However, the key is we have to give ourselves, our bodies time to do that. So if you're texting all the time and really using your thumb, you're, you're doing maybe little micro traumas in there. And so if you do that a lot, your body might not have enough time to rebuild it and repair it. 
So then you kind of slowly weaken that tissue, weaken that tissue, weaken that tissue until maybe you get an injury. Okay. And so it's really thinking about how much time am I spending doing the same task and having kind of um, a, a, a really changing up your movement as much as possible. So texting in different ways, using different devices might increase, might mm. change the stress. Okay. And that goes to the position and how you're looking at the device too. And, and you know, do you, are you always looking down? Can you bring your arms up so you look straight ahead? All those might change the stress on your body and just give your tissues time to heal. So what about the development of the, the touch screen? Um, is that changing the way? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a really great question. And, and you, can, you can picture how the ergonomics for the touch screen are maybe different than the old Blackberries we used to have and using right. the double thumbs. And I think um, it, I, I don't know that it's, it's, def, it's related to a specific problem. But again, it's, the doing the, it's using the touch screen the same way. Over and over. Over and over again and not getting enough time in between. The good news is most of us probably don't use it that much and it's not that stressful that our body adapts to it. Now, there may be other times when your tissue is not healthy for another reason. Maybe, you're, maybe you have a very repetitive job at work that stresses the mm. tissue or that you're not stressing the tissue enough so it's not building up its tolerance. And so there's a lot of interplay here. And this is, this is again, why it's challenging when we look at these things. We do ergonomic studies. There's a lot of debate about what is the right way to do something and what's the wrong way because it's very complex. And everybody, every patient, every person comes to that, that motion and, and that activity with different sets of uh, variables, right? We, we have stronger tissues or weaker tissues. And so it, it very well, it, it can be individual, Oh. And, and I, I always go with comfort and look for finding a comfortable place to do that. If you're uncomfortable, then it, it, it may not work. I, a great example, my, my wife likes to sit in bed and you know do some screen time be, before she goes to bed and she'll play some game. And she's complaining to me about how she's getting numbness down her arm. Oh. And... So she was having what we call an ulnar nerve entrapment, which you, you, if you've ever hit your funny bone, that's your ulnar nerve okay. at your elbow. Mm -hmm. And when you sit with that bent for a really long time, it stretches that nerve. And then what it does is it reduces the blood flow to that nerve. And nerves really like blood, and then it starts to get a little irritated, and she knows it. So it, for her, the easy fix was simply using a stylus versus her hand and her oh, finger. Oh, wow. Okay. And now that she does that, it takes it away. <laughs> now that might not work for the next person, and it wasn't like I came in knowing that, okay, using a stylus was going to be the answer. It was that let's change the stress on her body because this is not working for her. Let's change it up and see if we can find a way that works. And it's good to have a variety of different ergonomic choices. And that's why I really like adjustable chairs when you're sitting. Not because there's a particular way that's right. That I can go in and say, I'm going to set this chair up not knowing anything about this individual and this is going to be right. It's that person teaching that person how to adjust their chair so they can then find a comfortable spot for them. And that might change throughout the day. Maybe for a couple right. hours it's comfortable one way. They can adjust that chair and then it is comfortable for the rest of the day. Okay, great. Well, we're talking with Dr. Adam Rufa, a physical therapy assistant professor, about the best way to use modern devices such as cell phones and tablets on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. 
Um, carpal tunnel syndrome became this huge issue as more Americans began using computers on the job. Is it still a concern? Yeah, carpal tunnel still still occurs. Um, and again, there's multiple factors. There's some people who can use the computer all day, not have any problems. There's other people who doesn't take much at all. And, and um, some of it is just even the size of the carpal tunnel. And really what that is, is in your wrist, you've got your carpal bones, which are the bones that make up your wrist. And then there's a, 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 a tendon, basically, that goes over them. And underneath, between that, between that band of tissue and your bones, runs your, your median nerve. Okay. And that feeds sensation to your thumb and your first couple fingers. And some people just have less space in that area. So they're more susceptible to getting that irritated. And it's very similar to my wife. It's just a, a nerve entrapment someplace else someplace where okay. their nerve is not getting the blood flow it needs. It's getting pressure and you can start getting symptoms. Okay. Sometimes if you catch it early, you can change how the person's doing things and that'll be enough. Other times it isn't and, and they need more care. So do you have advice for people about how to avoid developing that sort of situation? I think one of the best advice, one of the best advices is try to keep your body out of extreme positions. So I, I remember very well that there's, there's, I have lots of stories about this, but I, I can remember a, a young a young child coming in for treatment once. He was maybe ten or twelve, and he was having lots of neck pain. And I'm kind of talking through, and it's not uncommon for kids to have musculoskeletal pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we started talking. It was when he was playing video games, and I find well, well, how do you sit when you're playing video games? And he likes to sit on the floor, right in front of this tall dresser where the TV is. So he's spending hours with his neck looking all the way up, straight up. And so an easy fix was just maybe sit on the bed or change your position. And it's not that looking up is a bad position, but you're just putting your neck in a very extreme spot, stressing some of that tissues and keeping it there. Um, it's also, I've, I've run into people who will be watching television and they'll, their body will be facing forward and they'll turn their neck and watch television and be there for hours. Well, that's maybe not the... First off, I wouldn't suggest sitting and watching TV for hours, but maybe straighten yourself <laughs> straighten up so you have more of a neutral position. And the same thing for your wrist. If you're typing, keeping a more in a neutral position and not have your hands bent way up or bent way down when you're doing it. So how do you go about figuring those things out when a patient comes in and says, I mean, is it a lot of interviewing to try to figure yeah. out what their habits are? Yeah, it or? can be challenging. And sometimes you don't find those things. And sometimes it's it's not the pit. Is as easy as finding a specific position that's helpful. But yeah, it's really talking through with the person and seeing what their daily life is like um, and trying to help them problem solve. Because the goal is really to give them tools to be able to identify what is and what isn't working for them and then having some options about how to change it. Because again, there's a lot of variability and what works for one person might not work for another. So give having choices of of movement and, and really the key is is just trying to change up your activity and your position we're lucky we just got a new building where i work and they gave us all desks that we can sit and stand up oh neat and i find that i don't do well if i stand up for a long time i i, I start feeling uncomfortable but the same thing if i sit for a long time but now i have a choice i can sit some i can stand some i can move around and that's what works best okay okay well, in terms of um, treatments, I mean, being able to have the option to sit on the bed instead of the floor to correct the situation, but are are there times when other interventions are needed? Yeah, there there is. And a lot of times what we'll look at, if we think, if we narrow it down to it's a tissue problem, so if it's a tendon in my thumb or 
or muscle my neck, we look at doing two things. One is trying to first give advice to reduce the strain on that tissue, but then also to do things like exercise and stretching, which help that tissue to build up a better tolerance mm. to dealing with that stress. So we, I find it's best if you do both. If you try to reduce the amount of stress on that tissue, but also give exercises and other things that help to build up that tissue's tolerance. Because it really is a balance between the tissue's tolerance for stress and the amount of force you put on it. Okay. I wonder if um, the proliferation of electronic devices, if that's had an impact on just the education of physical therapists to be aware of these sorts of things. Well, I, I would say... I mean, it has had some impact as far as awareness. One of the one of the biggest, I think, technology in general has had an amazing impact on healthcare. I mean, I talk a lot about studies, so I can look up. Before I came to this interview, I looked up and I said, "Let me." I know I've seen some studies about posture and neck pain. I've done a lot with posture and shoulder pain, and I can very easily sit down, get on the internet, and pull up study after study that looks at this, where. 15 years ago, I'd have to drive yes. into the library, <laughs> go down to the basement, look through books and try to find information. So it's, it's given us so much greater access to information. So it's been a huge positive. But the negative part of it is that people spend a lot more time not moving, including right. us. Right. <laughs> so we don't move as much. Our patients don't move as much. And that just is, is overall not great for health. But it really, I, I think that of all the of all the thing, all the technologies that have come out, that having access to the research and being able to being able to really get that very quickly is probably the biggest um, advantage we have today than we did 20 years ago. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, this has been your host, Amber Smith, speaking with Dr. Adam Rufa, an assistant professor of physical therapy at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse. And this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Ithaca poet Tish Perlman hosts the popular public radio show called Out of Bounds. There she interviews a wide variety of people from the arts, from science, from the university, and from medicine. But in her poetry, she offers sometimes dreamy and sometimes discomforting images of the world that lies just outside our physical plane. I'd like to read two of these poems from our new issue of The Muse, the first is Abundant Shadow, for Jean Mackin. You already speak the language of the dead, you who arrived in darkness and left before morning was fully awake. What you most remember, you remember intentionally. How the light fell just so, how November scent is with you still, smoke fires and burning leaves. You need not name the mirage, that silent stretch of road where illusions live, a prelude to what comes after, what comes again. The second poem is called Aftermath. I am convinced that the body was a last minute decision so that the soul would not be forced to wander aimlessly through the world. Death sets us back on course, roaming the cosmos, no end in sight. 
Thank you for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us next week when we explore how to make sense of food labels and we get an overview of treatments and research for Lou Gehrig's disease. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.